Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Friends, as we continue to navigate this crazy season that we're in, uh, just news is coming out this week, and as we've been listening, we just wanted to let you know we're aware. Stuff's kind of day by day. We're finding out more information about what it looks like for us to kind of reopen the city and uh, and reenter into normal engagement, and uh, we know that's going to be a process, but we want you to know that we're we're working on it. We're having lots of conversations. We're exploring options. We will get you information on that as soon as we possibly can, but really would appreciate your prayers and just pray that God would open doors, pray that uh, that God would make it available, but also just make it obvious to us what it is that we need to do in this season, and that would really serve us well. Um, We love you guys. We want to be together as soon as we can, but we want to do that in the best way possible. So uh, pray for us to that end. In fact, let me just pray for us now as we turn in, begin to look at God's word. Father, I pray and just ask that you would uh, that you would continue to, to heal those who are sick, that you would continue to give wisdom to those who lead our, our, our city, our state, our country, and lead around the world. Father, I pray, just as we navigate news, it seems like daily of difficulties we're facing in terms of economics, um, both locally and, uh, and even just around the, around the globe. Father, we, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your presence. We ask for your providence and your care over us in this season. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith as we walk through these times. Father, we, um, as we turn to your word now, we, we ask that you would increase uh, just our ability to see and our understanding of, of the truth from your word and that we might trust you more deeply and walk with you more, more closely in the days ahead. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Friends, another big piece of news this week was the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, that came out. And I don't know if any of you checked in on that, but I watched it with my family and just some great stories about Michael Jordan that make it clear he was really a guy you didn't want to hack off. Uh, Paybacks from Jordan are kind of legendary, and a couple of those came out in the middle of this documentary. One of them was about Danny Ainge, and Michael Jordan had gone to play golf, and Ainge kind of beat up on him and and, and was talking some trash, and, and so there's a little bit of back and forth on that. But later, just before they dropped Jordan off, he just said, hey, I got a little something coming tonight. And just gave him a heads up. And then that night in the playoff games, Jordan set the all-time playoff record of 63 points and just rolled. And, you know, it's obvious to me when you look at that, paybacks can be, can be a strong motivator. And in sports, they can be a good motivator, although it probably works out better if you're Michael Jordan than if you're you or me. But in life, Life, paybacks tend to not work out really to our advantage. In fact, in life, they get pretty messy. Uh, one of the guys said uh, of our anger and our attempts at vengeance or payback, that anger can be really embarrassing. And it's embarrassing first because it's unpredictable. Uh, how many times have you been in a, a situation where, and you just come unglued about something, and then you instantly are saying, Man, I don't even know where that came from. And we say these really intelligent things because some irritation or some snarky comment comes out or just someone rolls their eyes and you're ready to go full battle stations like it's D-Day. And so it's unpredictable and that's kind of embarrassing that we're, we really have such little control over anger at times. It's also embarrassing because it's public. 
Like, there's no way that you can just blast someone in public eye and then take it back. And be like, oh, I didn't really mean that. Everyone saw the look in your eye. They saw how red your face got. They heard the tone of your voice. And they know, man, that was coming from a deep place of frustration. And so it can be embarrassing and nowadays it's even worse because those things tend to get captured on video and they just play them back a thousand times over just to continue to throw it back in your face. So anger can be this real difficult thing that I think we walk through. And today we're going to look at an opportunity that David has where he actually fails very miserably in terms of managing his anger. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. You want to turn there. And we're going to see where David just falls on his face in, in, in complete failure in managing a situation. And here's the problem. That David, in dealing with his anger, if he goes all the way with the situation and does what he intends to do, it's going to be a permanent stain on his, on his record. It's going, to, it's going to taint his character in such a way that will follow him all the days of his kingship. And so David is got this sense of indignation about this man that's an affront to him. And as this man kind of dishonors David and disrespects David, David just feels this anger well up within him and he kind of begins to explode and David really wants blood and here's the deal the problem isn't that David felt anger the problem is that when he felt anger he took a load of gasoline and just dumped it on the fire and just fed that anger in a way that was going to produce something really really dangerous are you familiar at all with the phrase going to the mattresses I used that phrase a couple weeks ago and a young guy around me said dude I have no idea what that means and it made me really question kind of what's going on in our schools these days if we're not teaching them about the Godfather. But the phrase comes from uh, the, the mafia movie, The Godfather, and it really references a time that when the Dons are all going to battle and the five families are at war, they would go and purchase as many mattresses as they could. They call in every favor from every person and every gun uh, that they could get their hands on, and they would load them in the Don's house in order to protect them. So everyone would sleep there night and day on the mattress. So when they said, we're going to the mattresses, what it meant was, we're going to all-out war over this situation. And what we're going to see in this text is David has a somewhat minor offense. I mean, it's a legitimate offense, but David's ready to go to the mattresses over this situation. And here's what I realize about most of us is most of us aren't going to go in locked and loaded. I mean, most of us probably don't own a sword and don't have one to our name, but we all know what it means to lose our temper. Every one of us has been in a situation, has a story that begins like this. And there was this one time that that so-and-so did such and such, and I completely lost it. And all of us could tell stories about times where we just snapped and we lost our temper. And if you can relate to anything in David's story, surely this is one of those things. You know what it means uh, that you can relate to, to, what it means to be mistreated, what it means to be disrespected by someone, and to want to settle the score. So let's look at 1 Samuel 25, and we're going to walk through just part of this passage. We're going to spend a couple weeks here. And as we do, we're going to look and see what we can learn from David's life about how our anger intersects with our faith. And so in verse 1, we actually see kind of a setup of the story. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. 
Samuel was the prophet, really the last of the judges. And this is a very significant thing. It's a short verse, but it actually marks a significant point of transition from the time of the judges, where, where the judges, prophets would serve as judges and kind of rule the nation of Israel. And there's a transition now to a time of royalty and dynasties of kingships that are passed down. And so Saul, being the first king, has really kind of risen on the scene. And Samuel's faded a little bit in the background. But in chapter 24, as we looked at last week, Saul for the first time publicly admits that David is going to be God's king, that David's the one that, that God's going to have on the throne. And it's almost as though when that, when that transition takes place, Saul begins to exit the scene. And so it says that Saul, I mean Samuel, exits the scene. So Samuel passes away. And it's interesting here because it says that all Israel assembled and mourned for him. Just a little bit later when Saul dies, uh, Israel's not going to mourn for Saul. Saul turned out to be an evil man, even though he was uh, the king that the, that the people wanted. And Samuel was the one that they had actually let go and said, we, we're not sure we want to follow you anymore. But Samuel, as, as things play out, Samuel gets elevated and they see the, the goodness of this man this, and they rally around him as they go to mourn his burial. Now, here's what's difficult for David. And it says all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and that would be all except for David. David was on the run still. He was still an outcast. He still had to flee from Saul. And so David is unable to grieve and mourn his mentor and the guy that had anointed him as the future king of Israel. And so you just, you can feel the tension that this is gonna have for, for David as you think about this scene. In fact, um, here's what I, as we enter this, as we kind of enter this passage and you think about what David's going to face in this next moment. David's coming out of this kind of battle with, with Saul where uh, Saul steps into the cave to relieve himself and David's right there and David could actually, actually execute Saul, but he doesn't. And David says, look, I've repaid all the evil you did with good and yet David's still on the run and now his mentor is passed. And so David, in, in his grief, can't go and be with his community. He's still shut out. He's still cut off from the nation and from his people. And I wonder, friends, just how you handle your grief. Because I think one of the things that we see here is that sometimes grief can, can open us up to kind of a sneak attack from our sin. That sometimes when we're in a depressed state, when we're in an emotionally spent state, it, 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 we, our, we, lets our, we let our guard down. And, and sin can creep in and begin to, to find a way in through the avenue of that emotional grief that we're feeling. And I wonder, it's a little bit of speculation, but I wonder if that's not part of what gets David in trouble in this very next, in this very next scene. So verse two, it says, then David arose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan, Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So David goes and uh, you see this interaction with this man. It's kind of intriguing because it doesn't tell you his name to start off with. It starts off with and tells you more about him, what he's known for. This was a man. The man was wealthy. He was very rich. And so the first thing you know about this guy is that he has a lot of possessions. He lives in Moan, but his work is in Carmel. So that's in the deep south of Judah. He's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So he, he's got a lot of servants. He's got great influence really in that, in that entire region. And the, literally what it says when it's talking about this, the word it terms it uses for rich means that he's heavy, meaning, meaning that this, is, this guy's loaded. And so he's a very 
wealthy man. Walter Brueggemann, one of the commentators, I love the way he talks about this. He says, this way of introducing Nabal is precisely on target because Nabal's possessions precede his own person. His life is determined by his property. Nabal lives to defend his property and he dies in an orgy enjoying his property. Only after being told of his riches are we then told of his name. See, the first thing about this guy was not who he was and his identity. His identity was really in his wealth and in his possessions and in all the things that he owned. So then you get to verse three and you actually get his name. It says, now the name of the man was Nabal and his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So here you get his name, and his name is somewhat significant in this story. His name means fool. And so this is a guy who is known to be a fool in terms of his character. But also says that he was a Calebite. And that means, if you know anything about the history of Israel, that means that he came from good stock. Caleb was one of the guys along with Joshua that went into the promised land and, and believed the Lord and trusted him and had really walked in faithfulness. And so this is a guy that is descended from good spirit spiritual stock. But what you see is that the past performance does not guarantee future results. And so he's drifted away and he's full of riches, but he's really empty of faith. And his name, it means fool. And so when you think about this name, now I'm going to guess his mama didn't call him fool when, she, when the, the moment he was born. Probably he had a name that was somewhat similar and this became kind of a nickname, but it's what, they be, what he became known. Looking back, this is what he became known as, is this guy who's foolish. And he's also, it says, it says he's hard and he's badly behaved. He's harsh and he's evil. Now, you can think about what it would be like to be married to that man, but here you've got a woman that she's described as someone who's got good looks and good sense. She is an upright person. She's full of wisdom, and, uh, and she's also very beautiful, it says. Now, think about this, this home. In the home of, of a Nabal, in the home of a rich fool, you can have security, you can have comfort, you can have wealth, you can have great entertainment, you can have influence, but you're, but you're not going to have joy, you're not going to have peace, you're not going to have character. And so you can imagine just the tension of a home that's, that's like that. But you see this contrast, because you've got this woman who's discerning and beautiful, and this man who's hard and evil. And so you're going to see a showdown a little bit later. We'll see more of, of Abigail later, but really we're going to look a lot at her next week because, and I like this guy, I love and she gives one of the best speeches in all of the Old Testament as she makes her case and we'll look at that next week. But verse four gives us the context of the conflict that David's about to have. It says, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, what, what that really was referring to is the, the sheep shearing time was a time of great celebration because it's when you got to kind of reap the harvest of all the work of all year long. It's when they would cut the wool and they were about to make their profit. And, and what we see in this passage is that David and Nabal were business partners. David had been in this area for some time and he's got 600 armed soldiers. Uh, but in this time of peace, what he's doing is he's, he's making his services available to really protect them. Shepherding could be a dangerous thing. There were wild animals that would pick off sheep and so that's part of it. But there's also bandits and enemies that would come and steal from them. We saw earlier in Samuel that the Philistines would come up and steal the harvest from some of the Israelites. And so David and his men are there and David's uh, in this region of Judah and he's protecting all of, these, uh, all of these shepherds. He's protecting all of their livestock, their sheep and their goats. And really in doing so is increasing, is increasing his wealth, uh, Nabal's wealth. 
Now, remember, David's a hero in the nation, right? David's one that they've written songs about, that Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. Uh, David is the giant slayer. He's the one that's known. You gotta think that when David shows up and goes through one of these little villages, that all the little kids, all the little boys and girls run out and go, hey, there's the giant slayer, and they spend the rest of the day fighting with swords and throwing rocks with their slings and just reenacting the great scene of David killing Goliath. So David's presence would have been enormous in that region. But what you see is that David has made his services known voluntarily to help take care of Nabal's riches and all of his property. In fact, um, Nabal's servants later say that, that David and his men have been like a wall around us night and day. So we didn't lose anything when these guys were here. We were well taken care of. They were gracious to us. They, they protected and provided for all of our, all of our uh, security in this time. And so this was a time when bonuses were given out. And so the normal practice during the sheep shearing time was everyone that had had a role in the business shows up and they begin to give out all kinds of, uh, all kinds of goodies to everyone that had been a part of that business. And so this should be a time of great celebration. So then you get to verses five, and, five to eight. Let's look what David does as he, um, is, is he sends these men. And he says, so David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. This was a normal greeting at that time, but it just mean, he was being super gracious to Nabal. He says, I hear that you have shears, meaning it's time for the celebration. So your shepherds have been with us. We did, no, did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time we were that they were in Carmel. He says, look, we did a good job. We took care of your guys. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David's kind of sending some men in and he's trying to do so as graciously as he can, but he's asking for payment for all the work that they've done because he's still got 600 mouths to feed. And um, it's interesting when you see the way he approaches it, he's, he's gracious. He wished, of all, he wished him peace and prosperity. Uh, David could have shown up with all 600 men with swords saying, hey, 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 where's all our stuff? But he didn't. He graciously sent 10 guys in and he sent 10 because he expected a whole lot of goodies to to come back home with him. He expected 10 guys to have to load up and bring all this stuff back. But he's respectful in the way that he operates. He isn't demanding. He just says, hey, we hope that we have favor in your eyes. Would you give us whatever you have available to you? But he is expecting a share of his proceeds. So what we're seeing in this passage and the, 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 the kind of context of this conflict is this is a business partnership that's going to go really bad. And so in the middle of this business partnership, let's see how Nabal responds to David's request. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said to Nabal in the name of, in the, said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And that's never good, is it? When you show up at a business partnership and they leave you in the waiting room for a long period of time, that's what's going down here. They came and they expressed what David had told them to express and they left them kind of on the table out in the waiting room for a long, long time. Verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who've come from I don't even know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to him, every man strap on his sword. 
And every man strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. And you've got kind of showdown at the OK Corral uh, taking place here. But in Nabal's such a winsome guy, isn't he? Don't you love that? This my bread and my water and my wine and my shears. And it's like a two-year-old going, mine, mine, mine. And Nabal is just this kind of insulting guy. But he's not just refusing to pay. You notice he's even demeaning and dismissive of David. He goes, who's David? Well, everyone knew who David was. He's a national hero. Like there was, later, his wife clearly knows even that, that David's been anointed as the future king. And so this is a very much a polarizing statement where he's just dismissively kind of casting off David. And so first, he keeps some, his men waiting. Then he keeps, hung, not just any men, but he keeps hungry men waiting while they're preparing this feast. So these guys are sitting there smelling all the good stuff that's being prepared for this giant party that Nabal later throws. And the whole time, they're just left waiting, and then they're sent away, empty-handed, and sent back home. Now, even if David had not been in a business partnership and just been connected at all, Eastern culture was such that hospitality was, was, was a, of critical value. So he would have had to have given him something just if he was a respectful man, even if they weren't in a business partnership. No, this was an intentional rebuff to David's request and a rejection of David himself. But it's, it's actually even more than that. In this action, Nabal's, he's making a really strong statement. He's actually rejecting uh, the, the one that God's anointed. He's rejecting the one that Samuel had, or the one that Samuel had anointed. He's rejecting the law of God and, and his obligations that he was to fulfill. He's rejecting the man that, that God has chosen. It was man after God's own heart. In effect, he's really rejecting the Lord himself. He's drawn a line in the sand. And so David's response is really clear. He just says, guys, get your swords, let's go. He's just, if you want to play the game that way, like I can roll that way. And so he's showing up and ready for a fight. And have you ever noticed how much hardship you can put up with, with life, put up with in life, but disrespect comes your way and you just come unglued and you're ready to, to go draw your sword? Well, that's where David is. And at this point in the text, you think Nabal's the one that is in a lot of trouble, right? Because initially he is in a lot of trouble. He's got an army of 400 men with drawn swords heading his way. But what we're going to see is Nabal had offended David, so he was in some trouble. But if David follows through, and what he wants to do, he's going to offend the Lord, which means he's going to be in a much greater trouble. In some ways, uh, in this passage, uh, Nabal mirrors Saul. You think about the, the interactions that David has had with Saul all the way through. Saul has continually been just a thorn in David's side, a real problem, and just a constant irritation, a constant hunt. But he's also been an enemy that's literally hunted David and tried to kill him for years at this point. And yet, think about the difference in the way that David, David interacted with Saul and interacted with Nabal. With Saul, even just the last chapter, David had a chance to, to kill him, and yet David was struck to the heart and convicted and said, I would never raise my hand against God's anointed. And yet, here, just flip it like this. You got one guy who refuses to pay him and makes a snide comment, and David's charging with an entire army, ready to take off this guy's head. And not just this guy's head, but every guy in the village's head. So when you think about David, I think one of the things I have to acknowledge as we look at this text is um, just the weakness that we all have. 
But sometimes our wisdom in one situation doesn't transfer to another situation. In chapter 24, David gave his speech to the men about not harming God, the Lord's anointed. But here he, in chapter 25, David needs someone else to come give him the same speech, to, to preach his own news or his own, uh, to kind of give him his own medicine. Friends, oftentimes after a spiritual victory, we let our guard down. I think you see that that with David. That maybe after he kind of came out of this thing victorious in this battle with Saul, and Saul acknowledged that David was going to be the future king, and maybe he just thought, man, I've kind of progressed, I've grown, I've learned, I've kind of got this under control. And, and he begins to relax and, and let his guard down. And that opens him up to all kinds of issues here. But what you see is the constant pressure, the constant stress of the day. Uh, do you ever just... Do you ever just kind of cringe at the relentless number of stresses that just keep coming and they keep coming? It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Like not any one of them is this kind of crucial blow, but cumulatively together, you just think, man, I'm, I've just had it. I've, I've done all I can do. Sometimes it's not the giants that take us down, it's the little foxes that just nip at our heels and cause us problems that can actually bring us to ruin. And I think that's what you're seeing here with David. Now, I think it becomes easy for David to justify a little bit of anger, a little outlet. Just, I just need a little release, a little stress, a little payback. Um, he, he gets used to, uh, to people respecting him, treating him with, with respect and being able to walk with authority. And so when someone affronts that, and he just feels justified in retaliating against that. And really, you see this throughout the whole Bible. You see this difficult pattern of people giving in to kind of the lesser battle. Uh, it's interesting with Moses. And I think when I was reading this passage and thinking about this, I immediately thought of Moses striking the rock. There's a story in, in the book of Exodus where Moses has led the, the nation of Israel. He's gone through this huge showdown with Pharaoh. He's uh, part of the Red Sea. He's walked across. He's got the, the nation of Israel. Uh, they've provided for God's provided for them over and over and over. Manna from heaven and water even out of a rock. And so one time God says, Moses, they're, they're, they're thirsty and they need something to drink. He says, Moses, strike that rock. And Moses does. And water rushes out of the rock to, to give kind of quench the thirst of the nation. Well, just a little while later, Moses just, man, he just dealt with the grumbling of the Israelites over and over and over, and they come to another place where they need water again, and God says, Moses, speak to the rock. And it's interesting, God changes the tactic. He doesn't let Moses do the same thing, but Moses in his anger lashes out at the people and says he strikes the rock not once but twice in his anger, and that's what keeps Moses from being able to go into the promised land. You see this also with Elijah. Elijah fights the prophets of Baal and they go up on the mountaintop and there's this incredible supernatural battle that takes place and he kind of single-handedly confronts all these prophets of Baal and, and he wins the battle and God shows up in this miraculous way to deliver them and just kind of, and Elijah's taunting the prophets and it was just this great battle scene and then immediately after that, this queen Jezebel, this woman comes up and speaks harshly to him and says she's gonna come and he runs off into the wilderness uh, really suicidal at the end of his deal in total depression. But sometimes you, you fight these battles on the mountaintops and you think you've come through and then these little things, they trip you up and you let your guard down and you go and fight. And David, I think, fell so easily because his guard was down. He'd gotten past Saul and thought he was in the clear. But now this thing shows up. I think that happens with us sometimes too. We, we don't fight, or we, we, don't, we don't lash out in the battles we know we can't win, but then we, we, the ones we think we can control, we do. It's why sometimes we get mad at our boss, but we take it out on our wife when we get home, 
or our spouse does something to us that really irritates us and then we grumble at our kids or maybe we get in a situation and uh, someone does something they shouldn't do and they've affronted us and uh, we take it out on someone in traffic um, and that has nothing to do with the, the actual problem. Uh, that's the problem with our anger is it really doesn't usually fix our problems. It, uh, the best illustration I ever saw this was one from, I think it was like 1970s television and I think you can Google exploding whale and you're gonna, you can actually see this and get it on online but this was the best illustration I ever saw for how badly our, ang- our anger effect, uh, solves our problems. And in this situation, a whale is washed up on shore in Oregon and they've got this, this uh, reporter that's there asking questions and they're interviewing the uh, the. Uh, what do you call them, the national park guys interviewing the, the guys from the national park and uh, talking to them about like so what's your strategy and they said well we got a bunch of dynamite we're going to go put it up under under the whale and we're going to blow him up and they go what do you think is going to happen and well it's going to just disintegrate all that blubber and so this Howard Cosell sort of announcers there and you see hundreds of people have gathered around to kind of watch this whale destruction and as they do they have this countdown and they get ready for it and all of a sudden this dynamite just explodes and you see this whale and you, you kind of pans out the camera pans out and you see all the people and they were getting to like golf clap like oh very nice very nice and then all of a sudden it just starts raining whale blubber whale blubber just exploded in the sky and you just hear pieces hitting cars and you know, like it's just coming from everywhere and that's the problem with our anger that so often our anger doesn't get us the result we think it's going to get and it makes things a whole lot messier and that's what you see with David David is not going to be able to solve this problem and he's going to make things a lot messier than what he wants it to be. In fact, in verse um, verse 21-22, what we see is how angry David really was. Notice what he says. And David said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, meaning all the work I did for this guy was worthless. It meant nothing. So the nothing, uh, so the nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and much more. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him standing. So what David says is, I'm not just mad at this guy. I'm going to take him out, and I'm going to take every male that belongs to him out. I'm going to, I'm going to annihilate him and all of his household. Now, when you think about. When you think about David's reaction, do you feel like things are maybe just a little out of balance? <laughs> like he's got, he's got this affront of a guy not paying him what he owed him, and he's ready to go into all-out war over this. And um, he says, I'm going to kill all the people that are, that are his all night long until I get to mourning, and, and there will be no one standing. Now, actually, the old, the old translations have this better. Um, the, the translation I read just said he's going to wipe out every male, but that's not actually what the Hebrew says. The, the Hebrew says something more like what the King James Version uh, says. In the King James Version, David says, I'm not going to leave alive anyone that pisses, the, pisses against the wall. That's how mad David is. Uh, David, I think he, I hesitate to use that, and it feels really weird to do it right now into a camera. Uh, whenever I have these kind of moments, I think man, this would be a lot better if we were all here together and we could just laugh together about this. But David's, David's angry, and I think this, this uh, captures the way he really feels about it, and it's really more true to the text and what it says. It's funny if you look at all the other uh, translations of this. It says, you know, he who urinates standing up or something. But what David's saying is, if there's a, if there's a man 
he's going he's gonna to suffer and die. He's going to go down. And so um, now I do want to say, don't get mad at me. Like I didn't say it. David said it. And God put it in the Bible. So like, it's just there. But that's really, that's really the intent. And I think it captures how hot David was and mad about the situ- situation. But the real issue is he's talking about killing innocent men who had nothing to do with what Nabal did. He's talking about taking out people that didn't do him any wrong. One guy said, this is like killing a roach with a shotgun. Like, you'll kill the roach, okay, but you also put a giant hole in the wall. And so it's overkill, and this is what anger makes us do. It makes us overreact, and it creates a bigger mess than what is there. Now, here's the thing I know for you and for me. Few of us are, are carrying swords and going into all-out, kind of all-out visible, visible war. But we do this in all kinds of other, other ways. We do it through ghosting people online. We do it through, uh, through judgmental disgust, we, through, uh, through gossip and cut, down, cut downs, through uh, maybe cussing too. <laughs> but we, we do it through character assassination. We do it in all kinds of ways where we just take out our anger and our vengeance trying to make them feel worse than we do about the situation that we're in. And however we wage war against them, what we see is that our anger doesn't usually, doesn't typically solve the problem. And it typically makes things a lot messier. But let's be honest. I think we all know that Nabal needs some actual payback here, right? Like literally everyone in this passage says Nabal's an idiot. His servants say, this guy's an idiot who won't listen. His wife says, this guy's an idiot who won't listen. David and his enemy says, this guy's an idiot and he won't listen. And so everyone's in agreement that this guy's a fool and he deserves to be some kind of a payback. He's done wrong. And yet what we see in the passage is that, it, that it's easy for us also to play the fool. That it's God's grace that keeps any of us from being, uh, being idiots in the line of Nabal. That David, even though he's not acted that way previously with Saul, he's about to run down idiot highway and go execute Nabal and all these men. And that's why we need moment by moment trust and moment by moment grace. See, storing up knowledge and information isn't, doesn't foolproof us against sinning, against giving in to our own, our own anger. But we have to walk in constant humility and dependence upon God. That's why Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. See, our anger, our, our desire for payback, our desire for vengeance, is really, it's about trust. When, when, when we want to act on, in those kinds of ways, what it means is, I think I can execute justice better than God can. And so I trust myself more than I trust the Lord. That's why we can see in this passage the wisdom of Abigail. We'll look at this next week as she intervenes in this situation. She stands between the fool of her husband and the, the, the foolish act of a future king. And she stands between the two of them. And ladies, I know sometimes that's how you feel like you live or where you feel like you live all the time is somehow mediating between the fools in your life. And Abigail is gonna be in that place in just a minute. But she, she's gonna say to David, my husband is a fool just like people say but David you stop your foolish plans trust the Lord to fight your battles for you and if you don't you're going to regret this someday when you're king that's that's the argument that Abigail's going to make and we'll unpack that more next week and what we see in this passage is in David and his weakness he needed some outside correction he needed some intervention he needed someone to step in and restrain him from doing harm and he almost messes up as we all do because of his anger you know, it's silly to pretend that we've all got it right all the time, isn't it? 
See, character doesn't mean that you're perfect, but character does mean that you listen, that you're correctable, that you're teachable, that, that you realize you have blind spots that need to be revealed to you. And a lesser man might have ignored this stranger and continued on in his plan of retribution. But David's going to look back later and says, Abigail, your intervention was like the intervention of God on my behalf and kept me from making a horrible mistake. And he's never going to regret turn, kind of his course correction. In fact, I think David learns an incredibly important lesson here. Uh, verse 38 uh, says that 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Uh, think God can handle this problem? It took one. It took 37 verses of conflict and these guys going back and forth in this foolishness. But in one verse, it just says, "Hey, God, God blew him out like a candle, and and the ball was taken care of." Uh, I realize that's a spoiler alert, but we'll get to that next week. Uh, but but the point is, and, and what Abigail is going to say, and what David has come to realize is that the Lord's got this. The Lord can handle the stuff that David can't. So I want to show you one other place in the scriptures where we see David kind of wrestling with this. And I think we see the fruit of kind of the, the, the experiential lesson that David's learned through all of chapter 25. And I want us to go to, to Psalm 4 as we look here. And this is kind of where we see that for David, the only way that, that you can really learn to trust the Lord is to trust him personally. To, to actually go to the Lord with your weakness, to go to the Lord with your anger, to go to the Lord with whatever it is you're facing. And David's learning through his experience of life to day by day take the things that are the weaknesses in his life and the needs in his life and run to the Lord. And he expresses that here in Psalm 4. Psalm 4. And he says, O men, start, just jump to verse two. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He starts off and you can tell he's offended. He's talking about being dishonored. He said, my honor has been turned into shame. He's been disrespected by someone and he's emotional about it. He goes, how long is this going to go on? How many times do I have to endure someone speaking ill of me and cutting me down in some kind of a way? And it's okay to be emotional with the things that you feel. And David is learning to take those to the Lord and express it, but he expresses it in terms of, of calling these men to account in appropriate ways. But in verse three, you see, he also knows where to go with it. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. See, David says, I can pray. That when I, when I feel that anger of someone's disrespect and dishonored me and I want payback and I want vengeance, I can go to the Lord. The Lord hears me. The Lord, the Lord uh, I can pray to the Lord. He hears my prayers. In verse four, then he says, be angry, but do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. The phrase ponder in your hearts it means be agitated. It actually refers to kind of a trembling and a shaking. He's saying, as you're laying in your bed, it's like you can tremble with fear and your, your agitation and your frustration. He said, but you, you, can't, you can't sin. So in your anger, when you feel that emotion, it's not wrong to feel anger, but it is wrong to execute on your anger and take it to, in a direction that leads to sin. So he kind of ends that verse. He says, so shut up and go to bed. So shut up, go to bed, and wrestle with the Lord there in the midst of that. Verse five, he says, but don't quit. 
Um, he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It means keep showing up. Keep showing up to the Lord. Keep running to him. Keep doing the right things. Keep doing the, the, the spiritual things you're supposed to do. And for them, that was going to temple and offering sacrifices and following the law. So keep showing up to the Lord. But trust, show up by faith and trust him. Verse six, you see his kind of pessimistic friends. He says, uh, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? What he's saying here is there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna look and say, man, this is worthless. This isn't worth it. There's, there's no good that's happening here. Nothing, uh, there's no, uh, this isn't working. We're not getting the results we want. And so they're saying, what good does it do? But David goes on and says, but lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when, when their grain and wine abound. What he's saying is, to the Nabals, to the fools that he has to deal with in life, he says, look, you can have your riches. You can throw your party. You can have your celebration, but I've got the Lord. I've got joy, and the joy that, the, that God gives me is better than any party that you can enjoy. And so he says, you put more joy in my heart than they have in their celebration. So his relationship with God's better than their wealth and all their stuff. In verse eight, he wraps it up and says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He's realized that his, his Lord is the one that fights the battles. His Lord is the one that delivers. His Lord is the one that repays evil. His Lord is the one that can execute paybacks. And so his trust is in, is in the Lord. He says, you alone, O Lord, are the one who can really make me safe. I don't have to do it all on my own. You know, he says in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Uh, see, we all know what it means to lie down but not be able to sleep uh, because we've done something wrong. What David's saying is in peace I can lie down and in peace I can go to sleep. He's got a clear conscience. He doesn't have blood on his hands. He hasn't executed someone out of anger. And because he's given that over and said, Lord, I need you to settle this problem. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna rest in you. I'm gonna let you be my safety. You be my comfort. You be my companion. I'm gonna let you be the one that I lean on in this time. Then because of that, he says, I can rest in peace. And friends, isn't that what we need in this season and any other? Isn't that what we need in our weakness? Isn't that what we need for our anger? Isn't that what we need in, in all the places where our heart clamors for something that we feel like we have to fix, but ultimately we have to learn to trust the Lord with many of those things in life. So friends, um, we, are, we are desperately dependent upon the Lord, but our God is infinitely trustworthy. So let's rest easy and let's walk with him. Let's take everything that we face day by day and let's take it to the Lord and let's learn to walk with him in total dependence and in trust. We pray for us. Father, we, we are weak. We are broken. We sin all the time. We fall short of your glory and your goodness. And yet in your grace, you love us. You receive us. You make us your sons and daughters because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of all that he shed. Uh, Father, that he has made a way for us to be restored and to right relationship with you. And he has made a way for, even when we have fallen short, for those sins to be paid for, that we might walk in to your presence with great confidence and we might come into your presence and 
trust your grace and your love and your mercy for us. So, Father, we pray that like little children, we would rest in your arms, that when the storms of life rage, Father, we would be confident that the rock of your salvation is sure and that you are strong and that you will uphold us and that you have, our, you have the end of our lives in mind and you will bring about good in all things. Father, we pray it through Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.